Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Out front next, is the truce about to end? We are beginning to learn the true impact of being held by Hamas tonight as the truce is in jeopardy, what it has been like for the most vulnerable victims, the children. Plus, the top Republican blasting members of her party for enabling Trump, revealing that one calls him, quote, Orange Jesus. And the wife of Ukraine's spy agency chief, Poisoned. Is Russia behind the brazen attack and will there be more? There are more developments tonight and the foreign minister of Ukraine is my guest tonight. Let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, Israel and Hamas clashing in northern Gaza today. Both sides claiming a violation of the ongoing pause in fighting. This coming as the world watches and waits to see if the truce will be extended beyond tomorrow when it's set to expire. Ten Israeli hostages were released today. Two Thai nationals also released in addition. You're looking at the moment they were handed by Hamas over to the Red Cross. And tonight, two American women are still being held captive in Gaza, in addition to Israel's estimate this morning of 171 other hostages. And of course, if this truce is not extended, they will all remain in Gaza. Six of them are children under 18, children who may not be coming home for who knows how long, children who have suffered Great trauma. Dr. Efrat Bronharlev has treated some of the 31 children released so far. And one thing that stands out to her tonight is that the children, when they come out of this incredible trauma and then finally get to the hospital, speak in whispers. They speak very, very quietly about the most terrible things that they've been undergoing. One of the children that Dr. Bron Harlev treated is American-Israeli Abigail Moradan, who was released from the hospital today. You're going to hear more from the doctor and from Abigail's cousin in just a moment. But first, I want to start now with Matthew Chance in Tel Aviv. Uh, and Matthew, 10 Israelis released today, two Thai nationals uh, back in Israel, 53 days in captivity. And of course, there were clashes threatening this fragile uh, truce. What are you learning? Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, clashes in the West Bank, other um, allegations of violations as well by by both sides. But you're right, tonight, 12 uh, former hostages now uh, in Israeli hospi- hospitals uh, starting that very careful rehabilitation program that all 81 people that have been released in this hostage prisoner swap deal uh, have uh, been um, have been undergoing. And you can imagine what a sensitive time it is because uh, it's not just the trauma of October the 7th or what they've endured uh, since then in the custody of Hamas and other militant groups, but also what they've got to confront 
once they get home. <laughs> the tears are of joy and of sadness. This the moment Sharon Avigdori and her 12-year-old daughter Nome, kidnapped on October the 7th, are reunited with their family. But they know friends and neighbours were murdered and that others remain hostages. Relief here is bittersweet. Israel is releasing this emotional footage of hostages freed by Hamas, the traumatised women and children returning to shattered lives. Like eight-year-old Nava and his sister Yahel, just three, now freed with their mother and grandma after weeks in Gaza. But their dad, Tal, remains a hostage. <laughs> Little Emily Hand, who turned nine in captivity, is reunited with her family, but seems shell-shocked by her trauma. In an interview with CNN, her father spoke of his joy and pain. It was um, beautiful, just like I imagined it, you know, running together. Um, I squeezed, I probably squeezed too hard. Um, it's only when she stepped back a little, I could see her, her, her face was chiseled like mine, whereas before she left, it was, you know, chubby, girly, young kid face. Freed US-Israeli toddler Abigail Idan, who turned four as a hostage, lost both her parents in the mass attack on Kafar Azza. But her surviving family say they are taking good care of her. My name is Elamor. I'm uh, Abigail's auntie, Guli. Um, she just landed in the hospital and she's being checked and taken care of. I want to thank everybody for all your love and support. It's amazing and thank you so much. This crisis has shone light on the role of foreign domestic workers in Israel, like Jimmy Pacheco, a Filipino caregiver abducted by Hamas after the Israeli pensioner he was looking after was killed. Along with the applause, Israel says he and other foreigners get a lifelong stipend for their ordeal. At times, news of a release has been overwhelming. This is Hadass Calderon getting the call in a shopping mall that her 16-year-old daughter and 12-year-old son were being set free. For a moment, relief eclipsing the pain of terrible loss. And Erin, Erin, tonight, a big diplomatic push underway involving the United States, Qatar and Egypt to try and prolong this hostage-prisoner deal uh, swap deal uh, even longer. It's already been um, lengthened by two days to allow for the release of more hostages and for more shattered families to be rebuilt. All right, Matthew, thank you very much in Tel Aviv. Out front now, Dr. Efrat Bran-Harlev, the CEO of Schneider Children's Medical Center. She has treated several of the children who have been released from Hamas captivity thus far, including four-year-old Abigail Moradan, uh, we are going to be speaking to Abigail's cousin, Noah Naftali, in just a moment. So, Dr. Bran Harlev, I very much uh, appreciate your time. I mean, you have been seeing children really immediately after they're coming out of weeks of being held hostage underground, separated from their parents in so many cases. 
What can you tell us about their physical condition? Well, they came from different places in Gaza and in different times and, of course, different ages. Uh, but in general, I can say that they all came very skinny, very pale, lost maybe 10 to 15 percent of their weight at some times. And not only them, but their mothers as well, the ones that came with them. My colleague Clarissa Ward spoke with Emily Hand's father, Thomas. You know, he'd initially thought, as you know, that Emily was killed during the Hamas attacks, found out she'd been taken hostage. Uh, and here's what he said about how Emily's doing now that she's free. The other and the most shocking, disturbing part of meeting was um, she was just whispering. Mm. Um, it's that that just gives you, you can't even imagine why. I mean, I know that you also, doctor, have heard this, children coming who are whispering and speaking quietly. It is deeply disturbing to even think about that. Can you tell us more about what you're hearing and, and, and why? When I saw those kids, when I, when I met them at the helicopter, when they arrived to Schneider's Children in Israel, First of all, the look, the look of them, the color, the impression on their face. I could almost say that I saw a shadow of a child and not a child. And this is something very extreme for me as a physician, as a mother. Um, and I think this is exactly what, 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 he what he was talking about. And this is what we saw. And then you start listening and you, and you start just listening, not asking questions, just listening to what they have to say. And they do, they speak very, very quietly about the most terrible things that they've been undergoing. And it doesn't matter if they're eight, if they're five, if they're 13, you hear the same and it just, it's horrible. It's much better to hear a child crying or shouting than a child speaking very silently. When you met with Abigail Moradan, and she's four years old, just, just barely, she turned last week, um, was, it, was it the same? Definitely it was the same. The amazing thing is that we've seen those children in a perspective of about let's say, 48 to 72 hours. And it's just amazing to see the progress of a child starting, as I said, looking like a shadow of themselves. And then 12, 12, 12 hours go by and suddenly you start seeing some impression or a smile or something funny that they would say or they would eat something that they like. And suddenly you start seeing the child, the real child. Then they start playing. And then you, you understand that, that she's coming back. Doctor, thank you very much. I appreciate your sharing some of this with us. Thank you very much.
And Abigail's cousin, Noah Naftali, is out front now. And, and Noah, um, since the last time we spoke, obviously you've had the incredible news that Abigail is, is back and, and can start this long journey of, of recovery with you and her family. Um, Dr. Bronharlev, of course, saw Abigail, and, and, and Abigail's been through such, such incomprehensible trauma, witnessing her parents killed, being held hostage. I mean, no one can comprehend what any human being has seen in this case, and she's so young. But the doctor was saying that, that she and other children, after a day or two, they start to come back. You start to see that smile. It's not a shadow, but becomes a child again. Um, what can you tell us about how Abigail is doing tonight? You know, she's, as we said, four years old. And what we've heard and we've learned is that it will take a long time to understand exactly how she's doing and what the impact of all of this really horrible, horrible circumstances have been on her. We are hopeful that now that Abigail is surrounded by her friends and her family, that she will be able to, and the great care of of the doctor and that she will be able to go on and live a beautiful life in spite of everything. And, you know, these pictures uh, that we're showing, of course, Abigail at the hospital, and she does seem to be smiling, but, I mean, she turned four, right? And you want to see that bright smile of a child, but, of course, it is uh, just a child. I mean, has she been able to verbalize uh, anything? I mean, how is your family even managing this to provide uh, for her, everything she needs, as even as you say, it's really impossible to know what what she truly feels. I think I, I mean the family and Abigail are very well supported right now, and you know we'll see as time comes. But right now, the the word relief is an understatement. That's that's how we feel to see that this girl is not being tortured anymore, not being held by the people who murdered her parents anymore and is back with her family. And I know, Noah, you and I spoke about her siblings, her older siblings. They did survive the attack. They were not kidnapped, but of course they witnessed uh, horrors. They had to hide uh, that morning during the terror attack. And they're very young, six and 10. Um, how are they doing and, and how was their reunion with their sister? They were overjoyed. Um, we understand that Abigail really lit up to see them and, and her siblings and her cousins were, were just so happy and relieved to see her. You know, they've lost so much and we're glad they didn't lose Abigail. Hmm. I can only imagine. I know you must be um, yourself just uh, looking forward to holding her <laughs> uh, and having, having that moment. But Noah, thank you for, for sharing with us. Thank you. Noah Tali, as I said, of course, is Abigail's cousin. And next, after this break, Liz Cheney's savage takedown of Republicans who enabled Donald Trump above everything, which congressman referred to Trump as Orange Jesus, plus the deeply moving farewell today to Rosalind Carter. Her 99-year-old husband, along with Melania Trump and Michelle Obama, were among the mourners there today. And one of the three Palestinian students shot in Vermont may not walk again, according to his family as we are learning more about the three college students who were shot in an attack that investigators say could have been motivated by hate. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, Orange Jesus. That's what one Republican congressman called Trump, according to Liz Cheney, in her new book obtained exclusively by CNN. Cheney says that on January 6th, before the attack on the Capitol, GOP members were in the cloakroom and encouraged to sign their names on electoral vote objection sheets. So Cheney writes that most members knew, and I'm quoting her now, it was a farce. Among them, Republican Congressman Mark Green of Tennessee. As he moved down the line, signing his name to the pieces of paper, Green said sheepishly to no one in particular, the things we do for the orange Jesus. Out front now, Democratic strategist Basil Smeichel, former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin and Ryan Goodman are out front legal analysts. Okay, Alyssa, the thing here is, um, look, Liz Cheney does not hold back. We know what she thinks, but she comes here with quotes and receipts and all kinds of conversations. She calls out people by name. We laugh at the orange Jesus. And yet maybe the whole point is if someone's going to call someone an orange Jesus and still go ahead and do their bidding... Uh, maybe the joke's on them. Well, exactly. And what's going to be so remarkable about this book is Liz Cheney knows all of these players intimately well. Uh, She was one of Kevin McCarthy's chief deputies when she was House Republican Conference Chair and he was Majority Leader. She knows them. She has texts. She's had conversations. And what she says here underscores something that I witnessed for the entire time that I was in the White House, both with Vice President Pence and then with Donald Trump, is that many elected Republicans, while they publicly praise Donald Trump, say something very different privately. They, They openly uh, they openly kind of acknowledge that he's unfit he's unserious he often right. doesn't know what he's talking like about mocking him it, there's even a mocking. as he signs the the, the, the document and i think it's really important it. she's pointing that out because there is there's a cravenness of what they privately say and then what they publicly do and, and basil you know as, as Alyssa's pointing out right she she knew kevin mccarthy incredibly well and just two days before the election on november 5th then speaker mccarthy tells her Uh, or or two days after the election, I'm sorry, tells her Trump knows it's over, Mm -hmm. knows he lost. Mm -hmm. Um, He needs to go through all the stages of grief. Um, But of course, Mar-a-Lago, remember, Mm -hmm. a few weeks later, (laughs) Kevin McCarthy goes down there, he takes the picture, the kiss, the ring, that whole famous moment, right after he said he was responsible for January 6th and all this. So Cheney sees the picture. She writes, she thinks this picture is a fake. AI, who knows, right? She thinks it's a fake because she asked McCarthy about it. Okay. Mar-a-Lago, what the hell, Kevin? Kevin replies, they're really worried Trump's not eating. 
So they've asked me to come see him. Cheney, what? You went to Mar-a-Lago because Trump's not eating? McCarthy, yeah, he's really depressed. I'm doing this like I would read a children's book. Right. I'm putting <laughs> in the right. emphasis the way I believe it was meant right. to be included. I mean, seriously? Seriously. <laughs> and, and I think to Alyssa's point, you know, there were a number of legislators that probably mocked him privately, but publicly they had to show this fealty, this loyalty. And I think that's really the, that's what's shocking for so many of us, right? That you, one could imagine how in the world can uh, elected leaders in this country actually bow down to this guy and, and service him in the way that clearly McCarthy has done in that moment. Uh, but what's also concerning is, as we may, as some may mock him as Orange Jesus, there are probably a lot of folks that actually think of him that way, meaning that he in, engenders this cult as this cultishness around right. him, like the that, congressman's that, mocking, uh, exactly. but on something serious. Uh, on something serious, that there are people that actually feel that level of engagement with him, which is really hard to to sort of break and rip apart. So even if there are members of Congress that may say. You know what? We, we're gonna we're gonna support him, and we're gonna show our loyalty to him in this way, just so he feels good, and we don't get shamed for it or or somehow uh, uh, penalized for it. The yeah. problem is they have led their country that down this path, and that's what's so disturbing. And 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 Ryan, it comes this, the, these details from Liz Cheney as ABC's reporting as let's bring up Mike Pence, that Pence uh, told the special counsel Jack Smith specifically that he thought Trump had surrounded himself with crank attorneys. That's a quote. Uh, and that he considered not presiding over the certification process, the electoral process. What would that have meant if he actually didn't show up? So it's really extraordinary. It does mean that Pence may have actually bent at a certain point, thinking that on its apparently, according to ABC News, it's in his notes on the Christmas Eve, December 24th, that he was actually decided, I'm not going to show up. Then he reversed his decision. It would have sent things into turmoil. It probably would have meant somebody like Chuck Grassley, the president pro tempore, would have served in his role, which is really remarkable because we do have evidence that the two lawyers surrounding Trump, John Eastman and Kenneth Chesbrough, contemplated and game-planned out uh, Grassley serving in Pence's role. So it suggests that the special counsel has a deeper insight into those machinations. That there was a plan. A plan, and a plot. And it brings uh, Chesbrough in particular into the plot to pressure Pence, which is, there's not that much evidence that he was involved in it. This now does indicate there's something really there. Now, now Alyssa, here's the thing. Pence obviously was quiet about this for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Then finally he came out and he, you know, has, has obviously... He served in this role and it mattered at that moment, right? And, you know, I don't want to use the word hero lightly, but there are some who think that he played a, a heroic role in just doing his job on that day. But this shows that he was almost about to not do his job. You I know mean, him. We, we realized after January 6th just the brink that our democracy came to, and it really was the one man of Mike Pence that kind of held it all together. But to realize now, and I didn't know this at the time, I was talking to people close to Pence, but I don't think I talked to him after the time I left in December, left the White House. He was very close to himself not showing up for this. And if we can just thank his son, uh, Michael Pence, who's a U.S. Marine, who, according to Pence's notes, basically said, you swore the same oath that I did, which is what ultimately made him show up and preside. But that shows that he was such a historic figure in that moment. Uh -huh. He was so close to not doing it. And by the way, in a second Trump term, there's no Mike Pence's. So whether he's a hero or not, you don't even have the baseline kind of people who are going to show up and do their job. No, no. And what, but what do you, what is that you make of what, what Alyssa is saying, right? That the, the continued reporting is that it is his son, a U.S. Marine, who was the one with all these lawyers and all this brouhaha going on. That was the person who seemed to get him to say, I'm going to go back in there and do it. 
It's amazing. It's really, it is a powerful story and it's a powerful story of a parent and a child as well and that that is the turning point for him. And this is not just like Pence telling the special counsel this. There are corroborated notes. These are notes that the special counsel got that Pence himself wrote down at the time. And Basil, I have to ask you one more thing and this is about Hunter Biden, who also in the news tonight announcing that he's going to testify in front of Congress about all of his business dealings. Now, it was supposed to be behind closed doors. So now it's going to be public. And he's also going public in his fight overall. So it used to be sort of, I don't want to show up. I just want to disappear. Now, okay, I'm going to do it in public. I'm going to sue Rudy Giuliani for hacking into my laptop, um, which I guess that means that it is his laptop. <laughs> I mean, in the, <laughs> yes, <laughs> okay, exactly, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, but you're, you're in the middle of an election. Yeah. You're coming into Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, Biden as the incumbent. First thought is, can this not wait? Uh, But if you're going to do this, uh, I understand it from his perspective, why he would want to get his story out there and tell it his way. On the other hand, every Republican is going to take everything he says every single day and turn it into a commercial. When the numbers are that soft, do we really need this right now? I go back to watching Hillary Clinton in the Benghazi uh, hearings. What was that, 11 hours, 14 hours of her testimony? She did exactly what she needed to do and came out in many ways a hero from uh, from that experience because she answered the questions, but made everybody realize that I didn't need to be here, but I am here and I'm going to show up and do my duty. I don't suspect that, that this hearing is going to be uh, that way. I don't think it's going to have the same outcome. Right, right. And, and you know, making it about himself and bringing it all in. So and it's always going to be about Joe Biden. Be, that's right. right. All right. All, thank you very much. And next, presidents and first ladies among those bidding goodbye to Rosalind Carter today her husband of 77 years, front and center at the service. And I'm going to speak with Jimmy Carter's former chief of staff who was there and the wife of Ukraine's spy chief, Poison. Did Vladimir Putin give the order to target her? And was her husband the intended target? The Ukrainian foreign minister is out front tonight. Tonight, you're looking at former First Lady Rosalind Carter being honored today at a tribute service in Georgia. President Biden and all of the living former First Ladies were in attendance today. Uh, You see them there in the first row. President Jimmy Carter, who's 99 years old, was also there. He has been in hospice care for nine months. He was there in a wheelchair covered with a blanket with Rosalind's face on it, honoring, of course, his partner of 77 years. Nick Valencia is out front. On a brisk Atlanta day under the beaming Georgia sun, family and friends of the former first lady, Rosalind Carter, gathered to celebrate her life. At 96 years old, her death was far from a life cut short. Her husband of more than 77 years, who was rarely seen without her, the former president, Jimmy Carter, was there by her side for one final time, despite his frail health. The 39th president has been receiving hospice care since February. His appearance was visibly diminished, but he reportedly was so determined to be there, he had a new suit tailor-made for the service. Also in the front row, all of the living former First Ladies, along with President Joe Biden, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden, and former President Bill Clinton. Melania Trump sitting on the end of the row in a rare public appearance. She's largely avoided the public eye since her husband left office. She was seated next to Michelle Obama. Their husbands did not attend. Three generations of Carters were also present, all four of their children and 11 of their grandchildren, who served as honorary pallbearers. Their marriage, described by so many, especially their own children, as one of the greatest love stories of all time. 
that given us such a great example of how a couple should relate. My mom spent most of her life in love with my dad. Their youngest child and only daughter, Amy, struggling through tears, reading a letter written 75 years ago by her father to her mother when he was serving in the Navy. When I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow, Jimmy. Jason Carter, the couple's grandson, recounting some of his fondest memories of his grandmother. We were on a family trip, and we were on a flight on Delta from here to somewhere, and we were all sitting in the back of the airplane together, and it took off, and we looked over, and my grandmother took out this Tupperware of pimento cheese <laughs> and this loaf of bread, and she just started making sandwiches. And, and she gave it to all of us grandkids and everyone else, and then she just started giving them to other people on the plane. A touching celebration for a woman who led such a full life and delivered hope to so very many people in this world. Today's service was poignant. It was somber and even at times, even lighthearted. Today was much for, uh, very much so a public celebration of life for Rosalind Carter. Those memorial services will continue for a third and final day as a small funeral procession is expected to take place in her small hometown of Plains, Georgia. First Lady Erin is headed home. All right, Nick, thank you very much. And I, I want to go to Jack Watson now. He was there today, uh, President Carter's uh, former White House chief of staff. And Jack, I appreciate your time. Of course, uh, what, a, what a day it was to, to honor and to remember and sadness and, of course, moments to smile, uh, to remember a, a life, a long life well lived. Uh, former President Jimmy Carter was there to honor his wife. Of course, he's now 99 years old, though he was there in the front row today. It's the first time we've seen him in several months. Uh, how You were there, too, obviously, and, and for all of this today. How important was it that Jimmy Carter was there today? Aaron, I think it was important to President Carter, most of all. He's a man, as everybody who knows him knows, of great determination and I'm sure that he decided that if it were humanly possible for him to be there today, he would be there. So I think it was mainly and mostly important to him. Yeah, that he wanted to do it no matter, no matter, of course, you know, how he looks and all he's going through himself with hospice, that it just mattered. This moment, uh, in, in a moment of yes. human dignity, uh, it is inspirational, uh, despite the sadness. Um, as you were there... All, of course, uh, you had former presidents there. All the living first ladies were at this service. It was, of course, invitation only. Melania Trump, Michelle Obama, Hillary Clinton, Laura Bush. Jack, what can you tell us about uh, Rosalind Carter's relationship with any of these women who, of course, followed her in holding her title? I think it's, it's fair to say that there's a kind of sisterhood of first ladies. They know what it's like to be side by side with their husband through thick and thin. There are a lot of slings and arrows in politics, and the first ladies are right there at the president's side experiencing them all, and Rosalind was no exception to that. She, uh, she, took, she took things personally sometimes, but she would get over it. Uh, she had a good, a good relationship, a friendly relationship with several of the first ladies, and I think that the first ladies in general support each other in every way they can, every time they can. 
Now, Judy Woodruff, of course, uh, the famed, a longtime journalist, paid tribute to Mrs. Carter today. She had that great honor. She said this. I asked them how they thought President Biden was doing early in his term. President Carter was very specific on issue after issue <laughs> and quite complimentary of the new president. Mrs. Carter said simply, it's a great relief to have him in office. Uh, of course, former President Donald Trump was not in attendance. Uh, it was invitation only. Uh, whether he was invited or not, we don't know, but he, he wasn't there. Uh, President Carter, of course, has spoken out about President Trump very openly in the past. But this is the first time we're hearing the former uh, first lady may have uh, felt the same. But it's interesting how she expressed herself, sort of fits with what you're saying. Very clear, but yet very gracious. Yes. One of the really great things about Rosalind, and one of the reasons that she, that she had so many friends, so many people who loved her, was that she would speak her mind on the one hand, but she would do it almost invariably in a gentle way. She was, she was a wonderful reader of people. She was politically savvy, in many ways more politically savvy than the president himself, in my opinion. She was uh, astute. And I think that she did not hesitate to express herself clearly when she felt expressing herself clearly would be helpful. Well, it's, it's, it's wonderful in these times to honor and remember somebody who could speak both clearly and graciously and make their points clear. It is so rare in this world we live in. Uh, and so it is, is nice to honor someone who could do that. Thank you so very much, Jack, for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. And next, the wife of Ukraine's top spy in the hospital tonight, apparently poisoned. The big question is whether Vladimir Putin ordered it. The Ukrainian foreign minister is my guest next. And one of three Palestinian students shot in Vermont may never walk again. We are learning more tonight about the three victims who had just left a birthday party for eight-year-old twins when they were attacked. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, CNN is learning that the wife of Ukraine's spy chief is in the hospital after an apparent poisoning. Mariana Budinova is the wife of GUR head Kirill Budinov, who has been deeply involved in Ukraine's efforts to oust Russia from its territory and has long accused Russia of trying to kill him. Ukraine says other intelligence staffers now are also sick, and sources tell CNN that Western officials are suspicious that Russian agents may have paid off a staff member to carry out the poisoning. So far, the U.S. has not been able to independently, though, verify this incident. Out front now is the Ukrainian Foreign Minister, uh, Dmitry Kuleba. And Minister, I very much appreciate uh, your time. Uh, this is sobering and, and terrifying. I know it is uh, a fear that you live with every day, but a Ukrainian source is telling CNN that Budinova has tested positive for both arsenic and mercury. Minister, do you think Russia is behind this apparent poisoning? Uh, 
Well, it would be premature for me to, to make any conclusions, but uh, when you fight such a vicious enemy as Russia, uh, you have to be ready for anything. And Russia has uh, proven itself many times before uh, as, uh, a as a country that uh, uses poison as a, a mean to uh, kill uh, its opponents and its enemies. And definitely our intelligence chief uh, is the enemy of Russia, as all of us are, all those who are fighting against Russia. So it's highly likely that Russia is, is behind it, but I'm not making any official conclusions, so I leave it to the, uh, to the experts to make. I mean, the Ukrainian uh, military intelligence agency has said Budinov himself has survived at least 10 Russian assassination attempts. And I know, as you point out, but you uh, and, 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 and others who are on the, the, the forefront of this war are all targets. How do you even react to this news personally? Well, you know, I left all my thoughts and reactions and reflections about the risk of uh, dying um, on the 24th of February 2022, when I crossed into Ukraine, coming back from my business trip to the United States. Uh, when you are at war, again, when you are at war with such enemy as Russia, you have to be ready for everything and you have to make your choice. And we all made our choices and we are ready for, everything, for anything to happen. But it doesn't stop us from defending our country. In Ukraine right now, Minister, we understand Russia is suffering more than 931 losses a day, deaths on the front line. That's 20 percent more than Putin's forces were losing uh, during the previous high, which was in March in Bakhmut. Minister Kaleba, what is Ukraine doing right now to inflict this level of loss? We vigorously defend our land. Uh, we fight by all means because we know what will follow if we lose. And that will be uh, mass destruction of Ukraine, of Ukrainian infrastructure, of Ukrainian villages and towns, uh, mass atrocities, as um, it was evident in Bucha and other places. And uh, it's uh, well known that President Putin does not recognize the right of this Ukrainian state to exist. He doesn't recognize our nation, our identity. So stakes are too high for us. When you see loss numbers north of 900 and 900 Russian soldiers a day. It would seem as if Ukraine is making significant progress, yet your top commander, General Valery Zaluzhny, recently said the war is deadlocked right now. And of course, Minister, I know you're at this point uh, very familiar with what he told The Economist, but I'll read a quote of it uh, for everyone. Uh, he said, just like in the First World War, we have reached the level of technology that puts us into a stalemate. There will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. Do you agree with him? Well, I believe uh, General Zaluzhny also made another point in that, uh, in that piece, and that was about the importance to provide Ukraine with sufficient amount of weapons and ammunition that will help us uh, to crush uh, the enemy. You know, this piece should not be, uh, should not be um, quoted in only one element. Mm. Uh, we are working on, uh, a next, on our next victory and uh, on the battlefield. We have achieved a lot on the Black Sea recently uh, and on the left bank uh, of the Dnipro River where we secured a bridgehead for our forces. Victories are, are a result of very hard work and sustainable supplies. This is essential.
and, and Minister, when you, when you point out on Zaluzhny's comments, uh, you said that it, you don't think it, it would be right to take it as purely making a comment about a stalemate. You emphasize the word technology, that Ukraine needs more things. Um, the, a big question on that right now, though, obviously the world's been looking towards the Middle East. There's that reality. There's also issues in the United States. A $64 billion aid package to Ukraine is now in question. Some Republicans, Minister, as you know, are now saying that there has to be changes to the U.S.-Mexican border policy. That has to happen in exchange for supporting the aid to Ukraine. So these two things have become tied together. Half of Americans, as you know, think the U.S. government's already spending too much uh, to help Ukraine. How confident are you that you're going to get this help? And I guess another way of saying this is how worried are you that Ukraine will never get this aid? I cannot allow myself to be worried. You know, I have to do my job uh, to make uh, countries and uh, institutions adopt decisions which serve the best interests of my country, but also of the countries they represent. And I'm absolutely confident that supporting Ukraine and Israel today is in the best interests of the people of the United States. Uh, because what is at stake in both of our countries is uh, global security. It's not just security of uh, Middle East or Ukraine. It's, without an exaggeration, a um, a the stability of a global order. And, uh, you know, the best way to um, keep war away from your shores and from your borders is to support countries who are ready to fight the, wars, the war defending themselves. I would like to remind everyone that never since the beginning of the large-scale invasion, Ukraine asked foreign U.S. boots on the ground. We never asked the U.S. Army to come and fight for us. We, uh, our, our deal is still fair. You give us what we need and we will do the rest of the job because we're also protecting NATO, not only ourselves. So this is the line, uh, this is the narrative that uh, uh, I know is uh, widespread in, on the Hill, uh, in DC, and uh, uh, we work to make it prevail in the internal discussions that uh, Congress is currently having. Minister Kuleba, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it tonight. Thank you. And out front next, three lifelong friends, virtual brother, shot in an unprovoked attack after leaving a birthday party. New details tonight about these Palestinian Americans, one of whom may be paralyzed. And the man who was Warren Buffett's most important advisor, his dearest friend, has died. Tonight, one of the Palestinian students shot in Vermont may never walk again. Kasham Marwatani's family telling CNN that he has a bullet still lodged in his spine. He cannot move his legs. Arwatani and two of his lifelong friends were shot over the holiday weekend in what's being investigated as a possible hate crime. Polo Sandoval is out front. In so many ways, it was a very normal, very loving Thanksgiving meal. When three lifelong friends gathered at Rich Price's table last week, nobody could have predicted the nightmare that lay ahead. Each of them wished their parents were at the table with us. Tashin Ali Ahmad, Kinan Abdelhamid, and Rich's nephew, Hisham Awartani traveled to Vermont to celebrate the holiday. The three Palestinian students first met growing up in the occupied West Bank city of Ramallah. With American roots, they went to college in the U.S. They now attend Brown, Trinity, and Haverford College, all far from a conflict that's only intensified over decades. But just two days after Thanksgiving, a casual walk through Rich's Burlington neighborhood ended in tragedy. My nephew called my mother and said, Granny, I've been shot. That's how we found out. 
The three 20-year-olds were shot in what Burlington police have described as an unprovoked attack. Though investigators are yet to establish a motive, the families of the injured men fear that it was their Palestinian pride, worn proudly in the form of traditional scarves the night of the attack, that made them targets. I think wearing the kafiyas was a peaceful demonstration of Palestinian solidarity that was important to them and, and uh, important to so many people who believe in the, the value and the importance of humanizing Palestine. The struggle for a free and peaceful Palestine has been near and dear to the hearts of these young men, but so of their futures and now their lives that are put on hold. These guys are more than just friends. I mean, this is a brotherhood. They've just really enjoyed being together. And then, of course, to have this happen, I think it's been a real solace and comfort to them to, to be together. They, they have been sort of processing this together. They've been keeping a sense of humor in the face of some really trying times. And I think it's that friendship that has been and will continue to be really important to their recovery. It will be a long and painful road to recovery. Ortani still has a bullet lodged in his spine. His family says, though he has feeling in his legs, he's unable to move them at the moment. His uncle says he had been hoping to go on an archaeology dig this summer, but that's now in question. Ahmad and Abdalhamid face physical and psychological struggles of their own. Their families assure that they remain as resilient as they were before the shooting. Looking at the last photo, they took together for hope. You see a future doctor maybe, a future mathematician, a future archaeologist, um, three incredible young men. And as he continues to recover at this medical facility in Burlington, Artani is sharing a message with his fellow students at Brown. He asked that it be read at a vigil recently. A portion of that, Aaron, I can read for you. Uh, it reads, had I been shot in the West Bank where I grew up, the medical services would save my life would likely have been withheld by the Israeli army. The soldier who would have shot me would go home and never be convicted. Meanwhile, his, wife, his, uh, his mother, I should say, left Ramallah trying desperately to make her way here eventually by her son's side to continue to support him. Aaron. <sighs> All right. Thank you very much, Polo. And next, a man that Warren Buffett has relied on his whole life for investing personal advice. His longtime partner has died. Warren Buffett's longtime investing partner, Charlie Munger, has died. The 99-year-old billionaire was Buffett's right-hand man at Berkshire Hathaway. The two grew up in Omaha, both working at the grocery store that Buffett's family ran. Buffett famously said that they had not had a fight in 60 years. In his last interview with Becky Quick from CNBC just a couple weeks ago, Munger said he never believed when he and Warren Buffett started out with a, quote, piddly amount of money, that they'd ever get to $100 million, never mind hundreds of billions. Of course, they have made many shareholders wealthy, too. Warren Buffett tonight, of course, has lost his confidant and his close partner. He says Berkshire Hathaway would not be what it is without Munger's inspiration and wisdom. Thanks for joining us. AC360 starts now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.